Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Not an uncommon experience, I suggest, is really revealing what I'm talking about, a godly Christian man in the throes of living in relational poverty and, just as importantly, aware of it, aware of the ache in his soul. It's not immature to become aware, it's immature to hide the ache. For every hundred people living in relational poverty, I suggest that only a handful, maybe five, maybe ten, are consciously aware of it. I seem to believe that maybe 90 or 95 of those living with a soul ache numb it in a variety of ways, and that prevents the opportunity for relational wealth to be ministered to them. Now, my friend who wrote that letter, perhaps due to his work as a counselor, a very good counselor, a man who I've interacted with and shared some of my world with him as he shared some of his world with me, his interior world. Um, It could be true of anyone who hears the stories of others and hastens to express his own ups and downs, a pastor, elder, whomever, that when you really face honestly the painful risk of being self-aware of the feelings and fears and failures that lie buried in the souls of many. Um, they're, they're present in most, but experienced by few. So if that garbled sentence makes any sense, the question that becomes that's going to dominate my thinking now in session two, what, what's the path to relational health? Relational wealth, rather. I want to use the word welfare, relational wealth. And and what is the nature of the relational wealth that is experienceable now? Not fully, because we're still fallen people, redeemed people, but still with a fallen nature. Now with a new nature, but still that battle going on within us. Still as fallen people living in a still fallen world. What is the relational worth that's available to us that really could communicate to the world that Jesus Christ really did come and he's worth taking a second look at? Well, as I asked you to think about how you would respond to a fellow like that who wrote that particular letter, here's what I would suppose a lot of people might say in response to that guy. They might say, here's the way I'd respond to that gentleman, something like this. I wrote this out, so let me read it. Well, we all know that sometimes we need to talk with a really good listener, Opening yourself up to someone who won't judge you can feel like a taste of relational wealth, a sense that we're not alone. Throw in some non-meddling curiosity and a good dose of empathic concern and share an appropriate Bible verse and someone will feel less lonely. Maybe a good verse to share followed by prayer might be Philippians 1.6 where Paul wrote, I'm certain that God who began a good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. And after you offer all that to your brother who wrote that letter, you say, you feeling better now? And if that's adequate, then I can close in prayer and we can go home. That'll do it. Or maybe not. And the person might respond. Um, I might, if, if they offered that response to this gentleman and the fellow really didn't respond with any great encouragement, after they listened well, they were present with them, they offered a Bible verse, they prayed with them, they expressed empathy and lots of involvement with questions about their life, and after all of that, if the person wasn't helped, what would most of us then say? You need professional help. Well, I can't tell you, I spent 10 years in private practice, and I can't tell you how often during my practice times when I was offering professional psychotherapy to people who were coming in and sharing their struggles, sometimes after listening to a counselee share some really complicated stories of problems and difficulties, I can't tell you how often I muttered to myself under my breath, I think this person needs professional help. <laughs> and I had to, no, I'm a professional, I don't know what to do. But I hope you notice, I want you to notice this, that a mix 
of good, sincere listening, along with a genuine curiosity about somebody else's story, combined with warm, caring empathy, and if you subtract from that a brief prayer and a quoted Bible verse, all of that could be offered by a non-believer. What's possible to a believer that may include all of that? None of that is bad. I'm not knocking it. But I'm saying, is that the core of what it means to relationally move towards somebody to generate a little bit of relational wealth in somebody else? All that's, all that's possible for a non-believer to offer that kind of a response. So what, what's unique to what a believer can offer? Well, here's the beginning of a couple of thoughts for this hour together. The path to what's available in this life of relational wealth, which will never be complete until Jesus returns, it just could not exist, the path that we're talking about to bringing relational wealth into our Christian communities. The path that's available could not be available and will not be seen until we take into account the death and resurrection of Jesus, which made possible something that's impossible without the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because thanks to the resurrection of Jesus, death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel has moved forward, and each of us has received the gift of a new heart. Never minimize that teaching in Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. Never minimize the teaching of a new heart that has been provided under the terms of the new covenant. Without a rich understanding of the new covenant, all they're going to be talking about in this hour is impossible. But the terms of the new covenant imply a number of things we'll look at later, but a heart where the Spirit has taken up residence to equip us to relate with divine love. Go back to John 17, 22. I've given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. Well, Jesus lets us eavesdrop on his conversation with the Father. And to realize that the oneness enjoyed by the Father and the Son can be enjoyed in measure by us. That's, that's really big time. Have you ever thought about this? It's one of my favorite little cliche sort of sentences. But that God is a relational God, three persons. One God, three persons. Distinguishable persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I've often said that they're the only small group in the history of time that's gotten along really well. And once you believe that, the next question is, how do they get along so well? And how can we bring that kind of relationality into our relationships within the church, within the Christian community? We're now able to become one with the Trinity and with each other in a way that reflects the oneness enjoyed by the Father and the Son. I want to read the verse again to you with some editorial comments that I think might bring the passage a little more alive, at least it does for me, see if it does for you. Here's John 17, 22 with a little bit of added interpretive thoughts. I have given all, this is Jesus talking, I have given all my followers the relational glory that you gave me when you sent me to be incarnate as a human being, always fully God, but now fully human, and the glory you gave me is the opportunity to reveal what relating with divine love looks like when a human being relates with the same love we enjoy with each other and that we enjoy giving to them. Father, the cost of real love is great. Real love emerges when someone is committed to the well-being of another at any cost to themselves. I'm about to die to reveal your glorious love, and I give them the resources to reveal that love by how they relate. That's my understanding of John 17, 22 that we read earlier this morning. So the relational path, the taste of relational health, involves so much more than a friendly pat on the back, listening, being curious, Showing empathy. I wrote a book called Connecting some years ago and was arguing in that book that, that there's a way to connect that a lot of Christians seem to be unaware of. And I was arguing that what a good Christian counselor does is take seriously their opportunity to offer a quality relationship that only a believer can offer. And as I was teaching that, I was saying, couldn't a lot of that be brought into the community of God's people, into the church? As I was teaching that, I had Moody Founders Week, actually. A lot of people were listening to that. 
And I got a letter from a, two weeks after I preached that sermon at Moody Founders Week. I got a letter from a retired Christian psychiatrist who was 80 years old, and he wrote me a letter. As I was talking about the church can offer the kind of relationships that we normally think only trained counselors can offer. And as I was teaching that, he wrote me a letter and said this, Dr. Crabb, you have just committed professional suicide. And it's about time. And I thought, huh, interesting thought. Because I do want to suggest that so much more is possible to believers and I don't want that limited, I don't want that subtracted from professional counseling, but I don't want that limited to professional counseling as a way of saying that if anybody shares a real struggle, don't simply back away and saying this is over my head. Because maybe if we understand what relating and the power of the Trinity really means, maybe we could start doing a few more things, and I guarantee you there still will be place for Hope Road Counseling Center until the end of time. But in the meantime, can we as churches begin to move in a stronger direction? So let me respond to this question of how we can relate to each other in the power of relational energy that is divine in its own nature. Um, it seems to me as I've pondered this question of how to relate like that, that among the many, many verses that speak to it, one verse stands out to me. And I want to spend the rest of my time talking about one verse. One verse in the Bible that I think gives us, um, if we think about it carefully, some, some thoughts as to how our communities can enjoy the giving and receiving of relational wealth to at least some significant degree. And the verse, anybody guessing where I'm going to head right now? Well, not many responses at the moment, so I'll go ahead and tell you what it is. Hebrews 10.24, and I'm going to read it to you in a translation that I often use when I'm publicly teaching, but I don't use when I'm privately studying. And I'm going to read to you Hebrews 10.24 from the New Living Translation, which I think has a great value, at least in public speaking. Um, but the translation I'm going to comment on and going to offer some thoughts about other translations that might feel a little stronger to me than this one. But here's what Hebrews 10.24 reads like in the NLT, the New Living Translation. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good deeds. Let us think of ways. In other words, be active. This is a, a call to action. Think really hard as you're talking to people. Think of ways. What can I do now that could be used of God to, to motivate the people I'm talking with to acts of love and to good deeds? What, 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 what words do I have that could have that power? Where is it in Proverbs? We're told that death and life are in the power of the tongue that we really have the power to speak words that in the energy of Christ can make a big difference in the soul, that they can reach deeply into the soul and arouse the thirst for God so that it's stronger than any other desire on earth. Is that possible in normal community, in normal spiritual community? Yes, the answer is yes. So let's think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and to good deeds. And I understand that verse, to look at it very simply to begin with, to be letting me know what is needed to speak into the deep void of relational poverty. The loneliness that exists when only barren relating is expressed in others and by others. When there's just a felt barrenness in our relationships. How many times have you said to your friends, as I've said to several friends, as I've heard from friends very recently, a pastor and his wife actually, who said to me words that I've said and you've said many times, I'm with people and I like to be curious, I like to know who they are, but they never seem to want to know me. They never seem to say, well, what, what's going on with you? And, and really mean it. And the absence of that becomes very difficult. My wife and I were in a small group of some wonderful people. I won't name names at all. Wonderful people, some of whom's names you'd recognize. And we got together with this group for a number of years. And after being together in this group for a number of years, we would drive to our home after the time. And I would say to Rachel, I'd say, I'm... I'm, I'm my, my, my soul is, is emptied from our time in the group. Anybody ever feel like that after time in a group? My soul is just empty. And the reason it was emptied is that none of us got into each other's lives. Uh, each of us in this particular group were people that had a platform in the Christian world, and we all were sharing our very interesting stories of what was happening. And it was wonderful to hear the interesting stories. And I really enjoyed hearing the interesting stories. 
And we had a, a, a very, very um, talented Christian comedian in the group whose name you'd know if I told you. And he was just so deliriously funny that it took us two years before anybody else in the group tried to be funny about anything <laughs> because we simply couldn't compete with him. And we finally acknowledged that. We kind of laughed at ourselves. And then we have a guy in the group that's just a profound theologian, and none of us wanted to offer any view of Scripture in his presence. And so we kind of admitted we were all intimidated by each other. And then the topic kind of dropped, and we went on to sharing interesting stories about our lives. And I drove home so many times saying, Honey, I'm just exhausted by my emptiness in this wonderful group of really good brothers and sisters that I love and they love me, but it's not really expressing the depth into my soul or me into them. There's no opportunity for it. What would it mean to speak into the relational poverty of each other? How do we do that? This verse, I think, suggests, it also lets us know why Christ-like relating um, that, that, that it helps us know that the why of Christ-like relating. Its purpose, to borrow again from C.S. Lewis, is to form us what we really want to do in Christian community, what the church is designed to do. Lewis talks about in mere Christianity. He says the church exists for no other core purpose, many other purposes, but no other core purpose than to produce little Christs. That's Lewis's famous phrase, to produce little Christ. Paul in Galatians 4.19, I'm in the pains of childbirth until Jesus Christ is formed in you. What does it mean to be formed like Jesus Christ? And I believe the emphasis that Paul's bringing to that particular text in Galatians is I, I, want, I want the people to be relationally formed like Jesus Christ. Um, some of you are familiar with the group Menavare, which I have a lot of respect for. Uh, Richard Foster began that particular group. And I was speaking to a national convention of Renovare some years ago, and their focus is spiritual formation. And I'm very committed to spiritual formation. But I suggested to the Renovare group when I was there, would it be wise to be a little clear um, in what we're really after as a, as a ministry and as a church? Would it be better to change the word spiritual formation to relational formation? Because when you talk about spiritual formation, what comes to our minds has more to do with how can we be spiritually formed to experience God's presence, which is a wonderful thing when it happens, but what's available to us that gets overlooked is to be relationally formed so we put Christ on display by the way we relate. And so I've come to prefer the word relational formation to spiritual formation. Now it's important, it seems to me, when I read verse 24, let us think hard about how to ways to motivate people to acts of love and to good deeds. You never want to read a verse in the Bible out of context. And so I want to go on to verse 25, which reads in the NLT, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. Now I want to suggest that read that verse all by itself, and you're going to assume, naturally, I would, perhaps you would as well, that what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us to do is don't miss going to church. Well, I'm all for not missing going to church. I'm all for church attendance. It's very important. To hear the, hear the pastor preach the word of God, to engage in worship, and to get to know each other in ways that are possible in Christian community. I'm, I'm all for going to church, but I don't think that's what the verse is talking about. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but he's just been saying, let us be thinking of ways, let us get deeply involved in other people's lives, and folks, it's difficult for that to happen to the level that's possible on a Sunday morning. Because all we can do on Sunday morning is greet people briefly, and wonderfully, we can listen to the pastor preach, we can worship God, those are central to the church purpose Sunday morning, and I'm not knocking them in any way at all, I don't want to minimize them in any, any event at all, but I, what I believe saying is, don't neglect meeting together where there are opportunities for deep community relationality. And that's not going to happen as deeply as we all desire on Sunday morning. I wonder how many people leave a Sunday morning, and if that's their only experience of the church, they leave basically a little more relationally impoverished than when they came because they really didn't meet anybody. They didn't get to know anybody. Now, please, if I'm stepping on toes, I don't really want to, but I do know that I've been in several churches, and this happens a lot, and I think it can be a good thing where the worship leader will say, I'd like you to stand and greet each other. And I've heard it said, I want you to stand and greet each other because it's uh, so much better to worship with people that you know. And I go, I'm struggling with that. Um, so I greet you, and I say, hi, what's your name? And you tell me you're George, and I say, I'm Larry, and we smile at each other and sit down. We haven't got to know each other better at all. 
Now, my son, who developed his cynicism, I'm sure not from me, but likely from my, my their grandfather or somebody, <laughs> when he's been sitting in a church, he told me this, and uh, somebody up front says, greet each other. Uh, my son's name is Kep, K-E-P. And when somebody asks him his name, he says, Bob. Why not? doesn't make any difference. <laughs> What I hear in those verses 24 and 25, the writer is telling us, it seems to me, to meet together in a one-on-one basis or in a small group basis over breakfast in small groups of two or three hour meetings, whatever it might be, where we can in fact do what the verse is telling us in, in Hebrews 10, 24, where we can look at each other and see what's happening in the other and leading us under the power of the Spirit and the wisdom of Scripture to think of ways to motivate each other into good directions. So with that thought in mind, um, I want to look a little more carefully into verse 24. I quoted it from the NLT, the New Living Translation, that focuses helpfully on easier readability. But I want you to compare how Hebrews 10.24 reads in the NLT and how it reads in the ESV, the English Standard Version. And the English Standard Version is a translation of the Bible that has received a great deal of um, recognition for being more tied in a wonderful way, more accurately tied to the actual Greek text. And the translation now is not centered on readability, but on accuracy, hopefully with readability maintained, but accuracy as the primary purpose. And listen to the difference between Hebrews 10.24 in the NLT and Hebrews 10.24 in the ESV. Let me just read you again. The NLT, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good deeds. Have that? ESV. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Notice four differences that I think are significant. Little careful Bible study here. Four differences in the NLT and the ESV. Four differences. The NLT begins by saying, let us. The ESV begins by saying, and let us. A tiny difference of a conjunction that apparently is in the Greek language. Greek scholars tell us that the Greek, um, Greek construction, most commonly translated and, is in the original text. And when you have the word and, it's a conjunction. It ties something that's already been said. So to get the full import of what's being said in Hebrews 10.24, you've got to go back earlier to the last unit that's being discussed in Hebrews 10 before we get to verse 24. And if you look back to verses 19 through 23, which precede verse 24, obviously, I, I look back to those verses, and without reading them and spending a lot of time on it, I want to mention a couple things that are fairly clear. Verse 19 begins with, Dear brothers and sisters. Who's he talking to? Christians, brothers and sisters of Christ. He's telling me, I believe, that the conversations that are indicated in verse 24 are conversations that brothers and sisters can have. Untrained, all they have to offer is the Holy Spirit within and the wisdom of Scripture because they spend time. And those are the qualifications. Self-exploration, being aware of your own motivation, becoming a godly person more and more. Dear brothers and sisters, growing Christians, aware of the Scripture, releasing the Spirit within you, noting, noticing that you have the divine energy within you. You are the ones that I'm talking to in verse 24. I'm not talking only to the pastoral community. I'm not talking only to the elders in the church. I'm not talking only to the deacons. I'm not talking only to Sunday school teachers. I'm not only, to, not only talking to private practice psychologists, trained counselors. I'm talking to the community of God. I'm talking to people, to the laity. And so I hear what being said then, the message seems kind of obvious to me, take into account all that Calvary accomplished in you, dear brothers and sisters, when you move into another soul in conversations. The word and is significant. With joy-filled confidence in the work of Christ, those earlier verses talk about the fact that we now have entrance into the holy place, we've been washed in the blood, we're forgiven sinners, we have entrance into the holy of holies, and if all that's true, then that's me. Not as a psychologist, that's me as a Christian. 
and I can be in the Holy of Holies. What does that mean? These are just religious gobbledygook or is it really deep truth? I can be in the Holy of Holies as I'm talking to you. What on earth does that mean? That kind of lifts the stakes a little higher. The vision gets a little stronger. What does all that mean? Take into account all that Calvary accomplished. You've been washed by the blood. You have access, bold access into the Holy of Holies. The word and is significant. It tells us to think about those things as we look at verse 24. Without joy-filled confidence in the work of the Spirit, I'm not going to be able to speak with power into your soul. That's my first difference. The second difference between the NLT and the ESV, the NLT says, think of ways to do something. Think of ways, that's the phrase. ESV says, consider. Consider. Why is that an important difference? It's the same word in the Greek, of course. One makes it a little more readable, perhaps, or a little more comfortable. Hey, think really hard about some ways. And the next, the way the ESV puts it, uh, this word consider. And as I contrast, think of ways in the word consider, uh, I, I, this is what, it, what comes to my mind. Maybe something different will come to yours, but here's my thought. When I'm told to think of ways to motivate you, I might turn to Tony Robbins for help. An inspirational speaker. Think of ways to say really empowering things. I don't think that's what Hebrews 10.24 had in mind. But if the Greek is better translated, as the ESV scholars believe it is, consider, then the word consider has a strong, ongoing, present tense kind of a character. I want you to deeply reflect not just come up with some ways, but deeply reflect on something. I want you to consider. I want you to think really hard to consider. As I hear the word consider, I find myself feeling encouraged to reflect on what the Spirit might bring to my mind as I'm talking with you, as opposed to my just thinking of ways because, oh, I've talked to a lot of people and I might, I've read a couple books on tips for good relating and I might try this good tip. Um, but no, no, consider means to think of ways that the Spirit might bring to mind. When I, when I counsel with people, when I am engaging in conversations, one of the things I think I've learned a little bit better than I used to to do, I simply wait. When somebody shares one of their struggles, one of their problems, my immediate thought is, I don't have a clue what to say. I'm not sure what to do. So I'm simply going to stay present and I'm going to wait upon the Spirit to see if some thought comes to my mind, maybe from a particular verse, maybe from some theological understanding about New Covenant or Trinitarian theology. I'm going to be thinking about what, what might come to mind as I've been spending time in the Scriptures and pondering and praying and repenting of my own sinfulness. What, what, might, what might come to mind um, that the Spirit might, might put there about loving Jesus and loving like Jesus as I listen to you. What would be a God-glorifying, Jesus-honoring, Spirit-revealing phrase or word or thought or direction that I might want to take as I'm talking with you? Can I think like that when I'm, when I'm talking? One of the difficulties with coming out of a PhD program in clinical psychology, that was never mentioned in five years of training, to say the least. I was given all sorts of theoretical structures and practical techniques and, and the diagnosis is important. If you're diagnosed it this way, then here's the treatment protocol that follows based on our theoretical understanding of psychodynamics and all these big words that allow us to charge you a lot of money for talking to us. As opposed to that, is it possible that I could speak to your soul in the power of the Spirit? What did Paul say in Colossians 1.29? Everything I do, I'm talking to people, I want to present them to become more like Jesus. I want to present them mature, teleos, complete in Christ. And everything I do, this is a remarkable sentence by Paul, I do it in the energy of Christ which so powerfully works in me. Is it conceivable? Can we get a vision for that? Can I get a vision for that? That when I'm talking to you, just poor old limited me, poor old limited you, that I could do what Paul says, I could be actually speaking to you with the energy, with the motivation, with the passion and the wisdom of Jesus as I'm talking. Can I aspire toward that? Can I humble myself enough to long for that as opposed to depend on my quick thinking or my verbal talents or my technical skills or whatever else I might have? Can I reflect on what divine love and divine wisdom might lead me to say or not say? That's the difference, number two. Think of ways, well, here's some tips, or consider. That's a real difference in my mind. Difference number three, NLT. Let us think of ways to motivate. ESV, 
And let us consider how to stir up. Not motivate, but stir up. Apparently, as I trust the ESV scholars, remember Rachel and I were in England some years ago in Cambridge, and we, uh, in the earlier 90s, we spent a sabbatical of three months in Cambridge, England, and we stayed at a place called Tyndall House. And Tyndall House is a place for visiting scholars. I'm not sure why they let me in because I'm not a scholar. But uh, we spent three months there. And um, when we were back in England again sometime later, we stopped by Tyndall House just to reminisce a little bit of our good time there some years earlier for three months. And we stumbled into, this goes back a number of years, we stumbled into a room that was filled with scholars, the scholars that had translated the ESV. And they were working on their final corrections, making sure that the comma maybe should have been a semicolon and other details at that level. J.I. Packer was there. Wayne Grudem was there. A number of other top-level scholars were there. And, of course, we felt very intimidated, but it was wonderful just to realize that these brilliant scholars were looking to make sure that the ESV was reflecting God's Word in as close to accuracy as we can make it in English. So they changed the word motivate to stir up. Was that important? Well, here's my thought. The King James Version which still has a real place in our world, I believe. The King James Version translates the Greek here with the word provoke. And there are scholars who believe that stir up and provoke are rather similar similar terms, almost synonyms. And so when I think about I'm going to motivate you, then what happens in in you when you think of motivating somebody? You know, I I want want to push a little bit. I, I I want to be a football coach. Get back out on the field. Tackle that guy. What's the matter with you? Stop being so lazy. You're making $10 million a minute. Get out there and earn your money. And that's how football coaches operate, so I'm told. So I didn't play football. Didn't want to be yelled at all the time, as well as lack of talent. But the stir up has a different feel to it. It does to me. Perhaps it will to you. It encourages me to realize that there's something, al- something is alive in you before I even talk to you. And I'm based on New Covenant theology now. I know something from New Covenant theology. I know that in Deuteronomy 5, I know that God was talking to Moses and he said to Moses, Moses, when you came down with those Ten Commandments, my people were saying, Moses, tell us what God wants us to do and we'll do it. Remember the Israelites, I said that? Tell us what God wants us to do. We're going to do it. And God, toward the end of Deuteronomy 5, I forget which verse it is, but toward the end of the chapter, God is talking, and I almost can hear him in tears because he's saying, my people expressed a desire to do what they, to do what I told them to do, but they didn't have a heart for it. So, I'm going to give them a heart. And then Ezekiel 36 starts off at verse 22 or thereabouts by saying that I want to tell you what I'm going to do. And there's the introduction of the new covenant. But I want to tell you something. I'm going to be doing it for my sake and not for yours. That's in the text. You've got to stick with it because the text says that. I'm going to be doing it for my sake and not for yours. I'm going to give you a new heart so you will be inclined to keep my decrees. There will be an energy within you when I give you a new heart where the Holy Spirit's going to dwell, where you're going to be a partaker of the divine nature. All that is going to be in you waiting to be stirred up, not motivated with pressure like, come on, get with it, but more stirred up, rousing what is already alive in you because of new covenant theology. There's a longing that's lodged deep in your soul to become a more fully alive godly woman or a more fully alive godly man. It's in you. And when you're talking to a 26-year-old Christian guy and he makes known to you he has a porn problem, a porn addiction, the central thing that I suggest theology would put on your mind is the passion for relief which pornography provides, immediate relief under your control, just turn on your computer and just watch whatever you want to watch and you're going to feel a little bit better for the moment, arousal, excitement, whatever. 
But you're not going to get over that until there's a competing passion that is already alive in you because you're a Christian. You now have a desire to please the Lord, which means you wouldn't watch pornography. And until that desire gets aroused, stirred up, the hope of stopping pornography is going to be nothing more than a white-knuckle affair. I'll try really hard not to do it. That doesn't work, folks. But rather than that, there's something stronger within me. An old Puritan named Thomas Jommers, he's well known for this particular phrase, he talks about the expulsive power of a new affection. There's an affection within me right now that is stronger than my desire to sin. That's in me. And when I come to you and show you how I'm sinning, rather than rebuking me only with a sentence, well, stop it. I don't think Bob Newhart quite had it right in that video if you've watched that one. Stop it. No, that not be right. But is there some way to, and let us consider how to stir up, how to arouse the passion that is already in you so what gets released is who you most truly are because you're a son of God, because you're a daughter of God. Stirring up has a very different connotation to me than motivate, and I like the word stir up a whole lot better. Because I'm being told in light of all the truth of the gospel that Jesus has died for me, I have access to the Holy of Holies, my sins have been washed in the blood of Christ, that's the word and, and I'm going to consider, I want to just ponder what's really true about who you are as a Christian, and I'm going to stir up, meaning that I'm going to see if, because of the words that I speak and the power of the Holy Spirit and the energy of Christ, might stir the embers of a faint flame to generate fire, a passion to love and do good. And that's the, third, that's the fourth difference that comes up. Difference three was motivate versus stir up. And now here's the fourth difference. New Living Translation. Motivate another to acts of love. ESV. Consider how to stir up others to love. They drop the word acts of. What's the significance of that change? The NLT prefixes both love and deeds with the word acts. Motivate people to acts of love and to acts of good deeds. The ESV drops the word acts before love, but keeps it before the word deeds. And I'm suggesting, as I see that difference in the two translations, that by speaking of love rather than acts of love, I feel very drawn to do more than acts of love. Not less than acts of love, bringing soup to a friend who's sick, who has the flu, um, giving somebody money to pay a bill they can't afford if I happen to have the money. Those are good things to do. Those are acts of love. But the Hebrews writer is talking about something that includes that but goes so much more deeper. I want you to relate in a way that reveals the divine energy of God, not something that any pagan could do who's nice. They could bring soup and we Christians should bring soup. And they could loan money and we Christians should loan money or give money. But there's no need even to use the phrase acts of good deeds. Um, neither the NLT or the ESV um, prefixes, prefixes good deeds with acts. Good, good deeds are, under, are, are understood to be acts that we do and that's just fine. Um, but I don't want to put the word acts in front of the word love. Because when you put the word acts in front of, of acts of love, it, it seems to me you're talking more about things that you do as opposed to words that you say. And I want to be very clear that there are death and life in the power of the tongue. I not only want to do acts of good deeds with you, if I'm a Christian man who's relating well, but I want to relate with you within an energy that communicates I'm really for you at any cost to me. That's not an act of love. That's a release of divine love within me. And I see that as a difference. Let me just simply review all that I've said in a couple, couple of simple sentences and move on to one more thing and we'll be done in session two. And the first change, implying from the five verses preceding verse 24 that we could be in God's presence listening to his word and his spirit as we relate to others. That's what the word and tells me in the different translation of the ESV. The second word that's different is the word consider versus think of ways. And with the word consider, it draws me to realize that rather than feeling a pressure to do it right as we relate, 
maybe I could discern what is most alive in me that I could share. Folks, if you take these scriptures seriously, and I know you do, um, it, it's going to relieve pressure. It's going to relieve pressure to get it right. Um, it's going to relieve pressure. Going to be the, the pressure is going to be off. I wrote a book called The Pressure's Off. And it's going to be a, a way of, of this thinking about what is alive in me that I can actually share with you. The third difference is stir up versus motivate. And I'm suggesting that the path to relational wealth is not to motivate someone to do what they should be doing, but to stir the divine life within them to be released in how another relates. Hear the difference? And when somebody says to me, well, I know I need to do this, my response is, is the word need coming from the depths of who you are? What do you mean, Larry? You said I need to do it. Does that feel like a pressure when you say it's something you need to do, something you should do? If I were to ask you to substitute the word want for the word need, would that make a difference? Rather than I need to do this, I want to do that? Because I want to see the energy of the Holy Spirit released in somebody else's soul. So the word stir up moves in that direction. The word love as opposed to acts of love. You put the first three differences together and add the fourth, not acts of love, but love. And perhaps we can maybe just getting a little vision of what it would mean to stir up a desire to love a husband who remains distant from her. How do you stir up a wife to love a husband who neglects her as opposed to just get even with him or divorce him? What does it mean to stir up, to, to consider on the basis of all that Calvary has accomplished? What would it mean to stir up somebody who is having a hard time with their children um, and rather than doing their best to get things different for your own personal comfort, what would it mean to stir up a desire to reveal Christ to that rebellious child or that promiscuous teenage daughter or whatever might be going on? Is there a different kind of relating that Hebrews 10.24 calls us to? And now in just a few more minutes, I want to talk about one more translation. Can you bear one more translation? Which is a little bit different, but this one has been rendered by a Greek scholar named Kenneth Wiest, and um, I have his book on Hebrews, and as he translates all of Hebrews in the original Greek with no concern for readability, but total concern for accuracy, and yet it comes out fairly readable. Um, he translates Hebrew 24 a little bit differently, and I'm not going to point out all the differences, but you can hear them. And just think about the differences for just a few moments as we finish session two. Here's how Kenneth Weiss translates Hebrews 10.24. <clears throat> and let us be constantly giving careful attention to one another for the purpose of stimulating one another to love and good works. That says more to me than even the ESV. I'm happy with the ESV, but Kenneth Weist has just added a little bit of a, a lift for me. Let me read it to you again. Let us be constantly over lunch with a friend, even on the golf course. Golfers don't do this on the golf course. I don't typically because I'm so miserably perplexed by the fact that I can't drive. Let us be constantly giving careful attention to one another for the purpose of stimulating one another to love and good deeds. And what I want to underline in Weist's translation, think how rarely and weakly we relate to one another in the way that verse calls us to relate. In his translation, a little more clearly, I think I hear the high call the call of God to relate with another with their soul's well-being in mind, no matter what the cost might be to me. Divine love revealed in the gospel is the suffering, sacrificial love of Jesus. I hear in the Weiss translation a call, a call to the body of Christ. Be constantly paying careful attention to the other person. Constantly, whatever we are, whoever we're with, whenever somebody comes to mind, giving careful attention to all that we could discern might be going on in somebody else that we could speak to. 
And to the degree that we heed that call to be constantly paying careful attention to what's going on in another, we're going to be to that degree freed from our self-protective inclinations. We're going to be to that degree freed from our own self-serving inclinations, taking care of ourselves. We're going to be obsessed, not obsessed in a bad sense, but we're going to be carefully thinking about, considering what is going on in you. And if I really want to know what's going on in you, you're going to sense that I actually care about you. And I care about you for your sake, not for my sake. But a little more is implied in Hebrews 10.24 than the high call to be committed to another's well-being at any cost to ourselves. And what's a little more than heeding the call is to be alert to opportunities to speak a word in season. One, one, one quick story about a gentleman that I talked to the folks at um, Hope Road yesterday. There's a man that some of you might have heard of, Dr. James Houston. He's in his mid-late 90s now. He's been a mentor of mine for the last 20 or 30 years. He was a personal student of C.S. Lewis, which really impresses me a lot. I like that. When I'm with him, I say, tell me about Lewis. Um, but Jim Houston, Dr. Houston, he likes me to call him Jim. He's Dr. Houston to me, but I have heeded his request to think of him as a brother in Christ as opposed to a hero. He's Jim. But he's a guy that knows how to seize an opportunity. The second time my cancer in 97 came back, came back in about 2010, had surgery for it in 1997, had surgery again in 2010 for cancer in my liver. And the phone rang, and I was in the hospital for three weeks of recovery, and I had a, an IV feeding tube here, and I had IVs in both arms, and recovery was long and prolonged and somewhat difficult. The phone rang, and I reached over and tried to not to tangle the wires and picked up the phone and said, hello. And the, the voice said, in a very Scottish little accent, Dr. Houston's Scottish, my background, I don't know how to impersonate Scottish, so I'm going to do it. Don't criticize me. That is Jim Houston calling. Oh, Dr. Houston, how kind of you to call. Yes, laddie, yes, laddie. Up here at Regent College, he was the founder of Regent College in Vancouver. Up here at Regent College, we've gotten word that your cancer has returned. And um, so very sorry about that. Um, and people up here are saying, poor laddie. Oh, poor laddie, the cancer's returned. Oh, laddie, I'm calling. Not to say poor Larry, I'm saying privileged Larry. Oh, yes, privileged Larry. Yes, privileged Larry. Larry, you were in commander training. Yes, God bless you. And he hung up. <laughs> that was as close as I've come to ever experiencing Hebrews 10.24. I mean that. He hung up. He just offered that kind of power. And he didn't say, did I help you? Do you feel better now? He just poured life into me and hung up. And I laid back in my bed and I just laughed for joy. And then when some more cancer returned, I got a letter from Jim. Dear Larry, almost verbatim, but this is the exact letter, second most important letter I've ever received in my life, from Jim Houston. Dear Larry, how grievous to learn that the cancer has returned. Yet no doubt you've heard the words of Samuel Johnson, nothing quite clarifies the mind, nothing quite clears the mind, like a walk up the gallows. <laughs> I am so looking forward to what your, clearer, your clearing mind will do in the days ahead for the sake of the kingdom. Love, Jim. That was powerful. Now, I had never heard that quote from Samuel Johnson. I'm not terribly drawn to it, I don't think. But, <laughs> but the idea that the larger story of God is unfolding when cancer comes back. It isn't that God's going off duty or God's saying, oh my goodness, I should have been around on that one. He certainly allowed it. I don't believe he caused it, but he certainly allowed it in his sovereignty because he, I believe in God's unthwarted sovereignty. Nothing can happen in my life, whether it's cancer, whether it's a car accident, whether it's whatever. Nothing can happen in my life that thwarts God's sovereign purpose in my soul to become a little bit more like Jesus in the moment. And that's all Jim was saying. And it just sparked something within me. 
He was carefully considering what might be going on in this younger brother of his with another bout of cancer and how I might be discouraged because my smaller story is not going very well. And I believe he was considering that by paying careful attention to his younger brother who he knows pretty well and wanting to stimulate me into love for God because nothing can stop my deepest nature from being expressed, not even cancer. It meant the world to me. He seized the opportunity. Do I know anything about seizing the opportunity and implementing, implementing the call of God? That verse, Hebrews 10.24, is my best effort, at least for the moment, to think about what it might mean to bring relational wealth into other people. <laughs> he does it so well. I've got to say one more story before I quit. Jim means so much to me. We have two sons, and this is said with permission, of course. Our younger son went through, a, every divorce is difficult, and he went through a very difficult divorce with the wife who left him. And it was very hard on our family, hard on our son, obviously. And as the divorce was unfolding, it wasn't well known yet. We weren't talking about it. I was speaking with Dr. Houston up at a seminary, and I said, Jim, could we have lunch together? And he said, well, of course, Larry. So I shared with him, I said, um, Jim, our younger son, his wife has left him and getting a divorce. And um, we're not wanting to talk about it publicly at this point. Our, our grief is rather private for the moment. And he said, oh, yes, we wouldn't want to make this public now. We wouldn't want to get in the way of what the Lord could be doing in your former daughter-in-law's life. I hadn't thought of that. I was just mad at her and glad to be rid of her. Maybe my son could get a better wife after that particular woman. That was my wonderful, godly attitude. And Jim's comment of, well, maybe if we didn't talk about it, we would get in the way of the Lord's working in her soul. Oh, yeah, well, there's that, I suppose. <laughs> That's Hebrews 10.24. And then I went on. And I said, Jim, this is really, really hard. And his next sentence was, poor Rachel. <laughs> I wasn't talking about her. I'm saying it's hard for me. And then I'm realizing, oh yeah, stirred up something in me. I want to be there for my wife. She was hurting. See what I'm saying? Let us consider. Let us be constantly paying careful attention to one another in order to stimulate one another to love for former daughter-in-laws. To love for your wife when you're both hurting, but to be more concerned about her hurting than your own. And then whatever good deeds might come to mind. That, to me, is a vision for relational wealth. Becoming a little more alive in the body of Christ. And again, I pray, Heavenly Father, you're telling a wonderful larger story. Forgive us for living so intently in the smaller story of thinking you're supposed to cooperate with making our smaller story go well. Help us to believe, Lord Jesus, that what you've accomplished on the cross releases us to relate a little more like you even when our smaller story is going very badly. And Holy Spirit, you're within us, prompting us in the direction of releasing that divine nature that is now alive in each of us because we're your children. We're thankful, Trinity, that we can join in the reality of Trinitarian life even as we live in the difficulties of our smaller story. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.